So have you felt that way recently, the way I just prayed? That sometimes it, was just, it would just be much easier to stay in our homes. It would just be much easier if we could just hunker down, not engage the world, because the world makes no sense to us. It, it confuses us. In fact, the world can, in our responses, can cause us to sin against God by not loving our enemies. It can cause us to sin by, by not wanting to go on the mission to which Christ has called us. One of the greatest challenges of the church in the coming months is going to be to come out of COVID and have a passion again for our mission. Maybe you don't feel that. I feel that. Do you feel that? Am I the only one that feels like some days I just want to run away from the world? I, I just don't want to be in the midst of it. It's easier not to be there. And yet God has placed us on a mission. Christ has called us to that mission. Christ has equipped us for that mission. And when we're on that mission, there are going to be times that we are running full force into evil. We're running full force into opposition, full force into people who hate our God. And yet we are supposed to stand firm, loving neighbors, loving enemies, standing firm in our faith, being joyful, and still seeking that quiet life. And sometimes that becomes a little bit overwhelming. Well, in the book of Isaiah, we have shifted into a time that feels that way. Isaiah has been preparing us for this for six chapters. He's been preparing us. He's been preparing us by showing us what the, the Israel and Judah were actually like. He's been preparing us that when his call comes in chapter 6 and he's sent out to preach a gospel and that gospel is going to be not heard by certain people and God says, preach, that they don't hear because they might understand. We've been prepared for that. But then we shift into chapter 7, and when we shift into chapter 7, we're met with a whole new circumstance that sits back, and if we're not careful, we could say, what a stupid king this is. I would never do that. And yet if you just take one little break before you speak that, the Holy Spirit will say, you've already done that. You, you have had times in your life where you have tried to stand firm on other things other than me, and the grace of God has reached out for you. So this morning, as we learn about King Ahaz and the people in a very confusing um, section of Scripture, we're moving into the next major section of Scripture between chapter 7 and chapter 37, and, and chapter 7 through 12 are the introduction to that major chapter, major section. And that whole section is this challenge, is Israel going to stand firm and trust in God or not? That's the question that's asked over and over and over. And we're going to have one king that doesn't and one king that does and a God who never changes and a God who constantly does what he says he will do according to his covenant and he never changes. Will the people ever learn? Will the king ever learn? Well, let's you and I together this morning say, we'll learn this morning so that the next time we're tempted to shift our trust away from God, that temptation will be nipped in the bud before it, come, before it becomes sin. Because that's how we fight sin, is it not? We fight sin by understanding the Word of God and even understanding it in times that maybe we're not experiencing yet. The Christian life, if God lets us live long enough, we will experience that. We will experience a lack of courage. We will experience sorrow. We will experience persecution. We will experience a time where we don't feel God. We don't sense his presence. That will come to us. And so the constant study of the word, gathering together um, in worship, prepares us for those times. And it is too easy for us to come at the scriptures in an intellectual bent and never let it touch our hearts. So let's let these passages touch our hearts so that we are strengthened for kingdom work. Because there will be a time where we will be challenged, and God never changes. And our gaze needs to be turned back to him. Well, in your green sheets this week, I have written all of chapter 7. 
I've changed my mind on that. We're, we're, we're going to stop this morning after verse 17 of chapter 7. Uh, the, 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 the verses after that, 18 through 25 in chapter 7, really tie from what we're talking about today and lead us into next week. But the time needed to cover these first 17 verses, plus how the, the 18 through 25 are more connected with chapter 8, just became more clear through study after I wrote the green sheet. So if you'll stand with me today. Um, as I read, I'm going to read all of our texts from verse 1 to verse 17 of Isaiah chapter 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shook, shake before the wind. And Yahweh said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of reason and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, Yahweh spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord, your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put Yahweh to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Yahweh will bring, up, bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So there is much for us to uncover and to understand in this verse. Much of it is a historical setting that we must understand that's given to us in the Bible. We have some questions that we must ask of when this actual passage in chapter 7 takes place within the history that we're given in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. But we're going to look at this passage as um, responses, kingly responses. So in these verses, we are shown four kingly responses to an earthly threat. Four kingly responses to an earthly threat. So we'll ask our questions along the way. We'll look at the old, other books in the Old Testament. We'll talk about the fulfillment of the signs, and we'll set ourselves up to continue this wonderful section next week, beginning in verse, 20, or in verse 18. So the first kingly response is Ahaz responds fearfully to earthly kings. Look at the first two verses. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, reason, 
the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Romalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people, shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Now, when is this happening? Well, if we go back, I want you to turn to 2 Chronicles 28. 2 Chronicles 28. But we also could go to 2 Kings. You're not going to go there. 2 Kings 16. And at the end of chapter 15 of 2 Kings, we see the transition between Jotham. Remember, last chapter we were with Uzziah, right? King Uzziah. In the year that King Uzziah died. Then Uzziah's son is Jotham, and Jotham's son is Ahaz. So Jotham isn't mentioned here um, in, in Isaiah, but it's important for us to see that the struggle between Judah and the northern kingdom, Israel, and Syria even starts in Jotham's time. Ahaz, if you will, inherits it. In 2 Kings chapter 15, as we see this transition from Jotham um, to Ahaz, we read this. In those days, that is the days of, the, of Jotham and his death, in those days, Yahweh began to send Reason, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, against Judah. So it starts then, even before Uzziah takes over. Then... In chapter 16, we move into a description of King um, Ahaz, King Ahaz, and what he, what, how he is, is living as a king, and how terrible of a king he is. In 2 Chronicles 28, we see the same thing. That's why I had you turn there. So we have, in Kings and Chronicles, we have Kings giving sort of the beginning and end, and Chronicles filling in the middle of what I think is happening in Isaiah chapter 7. So in in 2 Chronicles, which I just turned away from, let me get back to it. 2 Chronicles 28, beginning in verse 1. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of Yahweh as his father David had done. But he walked in, in the ways of the kings of Israel. Now that's a bad thing in in the chronicler's language. They walk in the way of kings of Israel. All the kings of Israel after this divided kingdom were bad kings. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom. He even made metal images for the Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering. That, you remember that, the, the offerings to Molech. This is the kind of thing this king was doing. According to the abominations of the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So he's quite the king, isn't he? In fact, I would say he's not just a bad king. He's a pagan king. He's the same as the kings of all the nations that were not following Yahweh. He is a pagan king. He, in, he engaged in those practices. He does not know Yahweh. And yet he's still representing God's people. And God still extends grace to him on multiple occasions. Because God is faithful to the covenant. And he stands as king in whose line? In the Davidic line. And that's where the promises lie. Look at verse 5. Therefore, Yahweh his God, because of his, his, his pagan kingship, therefore Yahweh his God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel, who struck him with great force. For Pekah, the son of Ramalia, killed 120,000 from Judah in one day, all of them men of valor because they had forsaken Yahweh, the God of their fathers. And Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, killed Maasiah, the king's son, and Ezrechim, the commander of the palace, and Elkanah, the next in authority to the king. The men of Israel also took captive 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, and daughters. They also took much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. But the prophet of the Lord, the prophet of Yahweh was there, whose name was Obed, 
Now, let me summarize these next couple of verses so we're not reading so much out of the text. Obed comes and, that, and says, what are you doing? Do you not have enough sin of your own? You're, you're bringing back, you're doing the bidding of God, but now you're bringing back all these people to enslave them and you're taking their wealth. You're just adding more judgment onto yourself. You have enough sin of your own. And so some of the leading men taking uh, to face value on this and say, yes, this is right. And they meet the men of war that are coming back and they say, we're not going to receive all of these prisoners. And they dress their wounds. They even put the people who are wounded on donkeys and they carry them back to Jericho and they give them back to their people. And so they stop themselves because of the prophet standing in the way from doing an even greater sin against God's people. Jump down to verse 16. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. Now, back in 2 Kings 16, after the introduction of Ahaz, which is very similar to the introduction in in 2 Chronicles 28, it it tells a a bit more of a story of what happens between Ahaz and the king of Syria and the way that, uh, that, that he panders to him. And then it says the same thing, that at this time, he petitioned the king of Assyria. So... We have all of this happening throughout this king's reign. And where does, you can turn back to Isaiah chapter 7. Where does Isaiah chapter 7 fit in there? And I think the best way to understand it is because you remember that we have just read that Syria and Israel came against Jerusalem to wage war but could not yet mount an attack against it. So they came, what we just read, were 120,000 men of valor and 200,000 of their women, men, and children were brought into captivity. They came, but they could not overtake Jerusalem. And so that has already happened, I believe. That has already happened. Now, whether King Ahaz has already made his plea to Assyria, now this is what he's doing, right? He's saying, I'm in trouble from these guys. Assyria is the big guy. He's going to win anyway, so I'm going to go to him for kind of protection. He's going to go to to Tilgath-Pileser, who is the king of Assyria. That's what he's going to do. You can read in chapter uh, 2 Kings 26, you can read on how all that happens. But here, he is at the very most thinking about that. I don't think he's done it yet. I think this first attack has already happened, and where they could not completely overtake Jerusalem, they couldn't overtake it because God intervened. But they did great damage to it. And so now, look at verse 2 in chapter 7 of Isaiah, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They're coming back again because they're not done. They've made great leeway because what they want is they want the southern kingdom to join them against Assyria. They don't think they're powerful enough, just the northern kingdom and Syria They want the southern kingdom, Judah, to join them in their team and go against the superpower, Assyria. Ahaz doesn't want to do that. But Ahaz also doesn't want to trust his God. And we know from the story that he will make the wrong decision. He is the negative king that we'll look at in chapter 7 through 12. We'll meet another king, his son, Hezekiah, and he will do the right thing later on in chapter 7 through 12. So I think where this story sets, the best sense to make out of the Old Testament pictures of what happened is they're trying to get him to be in league with them against Assyria. They come down, they can't overtake Jerusalem, but they do take a bunch of people from the outskirts and they kill a bunch of people. And now they're coming back again for the second round. And because they're camped out there, the people are afraid. They know what they did the first time. And God knows what he's tempted to do. Now, maybe he's already gone to the king of Assyria and asking for help. I don't know. It doesn't seem like that in Isaiah 7. I think this sits right in the middle. He's contemplating it. He's fearful. And God is saying, who are you going to trust, king? Who are you going to trust? And that's where we are. So the first response is Ahaz and the people fearfully respond to earthly kings. And that's kind of our historical setting. We could say much more about that, but it would just confuse the issue for what we have to look at in chapter 7. This is about 735, 734 B.C. Ahaz takes the throne by himself in 735 B.C. 
So that's our first response. The second response, the heavenly king responds to Ahaz's fear. Look in verse 3. The first thing we see of the response from God, from Yahweh, remind him of my promise of a remnant. Look at verse 3. And Yahweh said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So why is Ahaz there? Well, if Ahaz is fearful of being put under siege, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to go check and make sure his water supply is secure. And this is the water supply that, that is giving all of Jerusalem the water that they need from an underground stream and then brought in. And so he's looking at this point. I think he's inspecting to make sure everything is okay. God knows he's going to be there because the first thing he's going to do is take things in his own hand, right? I want to go make sure things are like they should be because I'm the king instead of getting on his knees and asking the king of kings what he wants to have done. And so... He's to go out and meet him there. God says he is there. You're to go meet him there. But you're to take your son, and his son's name is Shear Jashub, which your translation may have translated, or it may be in your footnote, that it means a remnant shall return. So just the act, this is a, this is a visible sign act, isn't it? God says, take your son. His name is known, and his, the meaning of his name is known. So in one sense, in a minor sense, this is God's word becoming flesh. Is it not? In a minor sense, God says, I want you to go remind him about a remnant. So take this picture. Here's the son. His name means a remnant shall return, and just his presence should remind this king that I have promised a remnant. Now remember, we finished up chapter 6 with that. A holy seed is its stump. A people is, will still be left. The remnant is constantly brought out to us in different ways in Isaiah to remind us that God is in charge. He is not going to completely abandon his people. Even when his people give themselves over to utter sin, God is going to honor the covenant and the promises he made to David and bring a remnant and keep a remnant through all of his destruction. So we have that hinted at the end of chapter 6, and he wants to remind Ahaz of that. And just the presence of, his, of Isaiah's son does that. So this is the first of several sons we meet in this, in this passage from 7 to 12. And the idea of sons will be important, and their symbolism. And we have to ask some questions as we get to some of these children. But this one is clear. Take your son, and this is what you say to him. So remind him of my promise of a remnant. But secondly, God tells Isaiah, command him to rest in me and fear not, for earthly kings are no match for me. Look at verse 4. And say to him, that is Isaiah, say to the king, Ahaz, and he has four commands here. The first one in the ESV says, be careful. I think that's a little tame. It's be on guard, be on watch, post yourself, watch for everything that's going on. Now, we don't know how far that's supposed to be, but Ahaz is not watching for anything except his own backside, right? That's all he's caring about at this point. I have nations coming against me. I want to choose the big dog and align with them because I'm fearful of what might happen. And he says, stand on watch, stand on watch. Say to him, be careful. That's a command. Second is be quiet. And I think this is better. Rest. Rest. And I'll tell you why. Turn to two passages with me. Keep your finger in chapter 7. Turn to chapter 30 of Isaiah and look at verse 15. Isaiah 30, 15. For thus says Yahweh, or thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning, repenting, returning to me, that's what that phrase means. He's telling his people, in returning and rest, that's our word, that's the same word, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. And he goes on to say, at this time, they're unwilling and the consequences, and yet God's still going to give grace to them. I want you to look at another passage in Isaiah with the same word, chapter 57, verse 20. Isaiah 57, 
verse 20. So for the, those who will be saved, they should rest and trust in the Lord. That will lead to their salvation. The same word used in verse 20 of chapter 57, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. There's our word. It cannot rest. It stays in turmoil. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Do you see how Isaiah uses this word? If you want to be saved, you rest in the Lord. If you want to be lost with the wicked, then you're constantly in turmoil. There is no rest for you. And that's what's being communicated to Isaiah in chapter 7 when, he gives, when God gives through, communicated to the king through Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 4. Be careful. Rest. Rest in me. Second command. Don't go trying to fix this on your own. Rest in me. Trust in me. And that's the theme that's going to be pushed forward. Look at the third command in verse 4 of Isaiah 7. Do not fear. Now, they're all fearing, right? The king and the people. And this tends to happen, right? If the leaders are going to shrink back in fear, the people are going to go, well, if the leaders are fearful, we ought to be fearful. Only a few will stand up against them. So the king is leading and the people are following him and they're shaking like a leaf on a tree. Well, this idea of, of not fearful is strung out through scripture, but I just want you to look at one place, Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, verse 4. This theme is going to drive us forward. Many times. It does all through Scripture. That's why the angels show up. First thing people want to do is be afraid of angels. And the angels, what do they say often? Fear not. Do not fear. Because the angels are doing the bidding of the sovereign one who is out for his people. Look at chapter 35 of Isaiah, verse 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart. Now, let's just stop there. Does Ahab has an anxious heart right now? Do his people have an anxious heart? Have you ever had an anxious heart? Everybody should be shaking your head yes, right? If you've never had an anxious heart, then you're not engaging your heart very much, and you're not, uh, uh, you're not um, observing the wickedness in the world enough. But the anxiousness should not stay there because we serve the king. What, is, what are we told in, in, in the New Testament? Be worryful, worried about everything. Is that what it says? It says be anxious for nothing. So there is a reason behind that. We are putting our trust, we are praying to God, we are putting our trust in Christ and the peace of God passes all, understand, it passes all understanding, overwhelms our hearts. So the, just the command not to be anxious tells us that human beings, when we're sinning, are going to do what? Be tempted to be anxious. So this is a word to all of us. It's definitely a word to Ahaz. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. We could go to five or six other passages that strong where the, where the book of Isaiah, the, the writing of Isaiah is trying to get God's people to not be fearful of what goes on around them. And the opposite of being fearful of what's happening around us is to have our faith and trust placed in God and to have our gaze turned toward him. So back in Isaiah 7, he says, be on guard, be careful. And then he says, be quiet. And then he says, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. So that means they used to be burning pretty bright. And to the, to the king and the nation, they're burning pretty bright. They've already been there once and done a lot of damage, and now they're parked in the lawn again, just sitting outside, waiting, biding their time to come in. And he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be, don't be swayed by this. Don't let your heart be faint, which is the picture of leaves twittering on a tree, right? Faint. And he says, don't do that. They're smoldering stumps of firebrands. See, the Lord sees things through his eyes, through knowing the end from the beginning. He knows that no matter how blustery they may seem, that they're nothing 
And he wants Ahaz to communicate to his people that God is still in control of this. And he'll, he'll flesh that out as we go through these verses. Don't let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Razin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Now, it's really interesting to me that it's the son of Ramalia the rest of the way through. This is, this is a catty insult. It would be like somebody talking to you and they don't give you a name. They say you're so-and-so's son. They name your daddy. He's worth naming. You're not even worth bringing to our lips. And that's what I think is going on here. The, with the son of Ramalia, it's not, it's not Pekah. He's not brought in here. It's the son of Ramalia. It is a slap in his face to say, this king ain't nothing compared to the true king of the world. And he says, you're, you're fearful because Syria with Ephraim, verse 5, and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. So they want to set a puppet king in because all they want is the armies of Judah to join the armies of Israel and Syria against Assyria. That's all they want. And so if they can overcome the king, which they came close to doing, if they can overcome the king, they can set their puppet king in and get what they want to do. Well, God has something to say about this, doesn't he? Verse 7, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. Now catch the play on words as we go through here. It shall not stand. In other words, their plans shall not stand. Their plans shall not come to pass. Why? Verse 8, for the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is reason. So he says, the country, the capital, the king. The same format is used both times. That the country is mentioned, the country has a capital, and the capital has a king. And he's going to make a contrast that's implied and not even said here. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head, so Syria is the country, Damascus is the capital, and the head of Damascus is reason, the king. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. We'll come back to that. Verse 9 and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. So the country, the capital, the king. And he's saying these are firebrands. And he's, through this whole section, is going to say, these plans will not stand, and I will overcome them. And he will be very specific about what will happen. The first specificity comes in verse 8. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. So Ephraim is a northern kingdom. And within 65 years, we're somewhere around 735 B.C. here. And within 65 years, he says, they'll be shattered from being a people. That's pretty specific, is it not? 65 years? And yet we can trace the history of Israel. If you go back into 2 Kings and move on to chapter 17, you see this happen. You see it happen where the king of Assyria sends people from other nations into the northern kingdom so that they kind of overtake their culture. They overtake their culture. They overtake all that's going on there. But it works too well because the people then that are there were rebelling because the new people don't know God and they don't know Yahweh and they, they don't know how to worship. So he says, send one of their uh, priests to them so that they can learn the ways of their people. And, you know, the king just said, he's thinking this, just enough to keep them quiet, right? And so he sends a priest in, and that priest comes in, and over time, what happens is that they bring in all of their other gods as well as Yahweh and his worship. So they have worship of Yahweh, but then all the people keep their gods, their household gods, their ways of worshiping, and it all gets amalgamated together into what we now know as the Sumerians. So they are the people that through this time, and this is about 65 years later, this is about 670 is when this happens, and their identity is washed away because it's all intermingled with other gods, and now all of a sudden they're a new religion and a new people, never to return, the old northern kingdom. You see this in Ezra chapter 4 when all the, the uh, exiles come back and they're going to rebuild the temple. They don't want the ones who are, they've been in the country to help them because they're not true Jews anymore. They have been amalgamated into all of this. So this specific prophecy is fulfilled 65 years later where they cease to be a people. Even though that they are overtaken in 722. 
That's when the battle happens, that they're taken into captivity. They lose their identity 65 years later. Command him to rest in me and fear not, for earthly kings are no match for me. But he also says, warn him to stand firm in his faith or he will fall. This is the second response, the second kingly response where the heavenly king responds to Ahaz, the earthly king, and responds to his fear. Look at this last half of verse 9. If you, now note that the you here is plural. It's not just about the king. It's not just about the king here. If you, the king and your people, are not firm in faith, This is a play on words here. You will not be firm at all. So if you're not standing firm, God says the plans of these other kings will not stand. You, if you're not standing firm, what will happen? You will not stand firm at all. The mark of you being my people is that you trust me. That's the covenant, right? You will be my people and I will be your God. When you sin, I I will punish you. And when you don't sin, I will bless you. When you obey me, I will bless you. This is the relationship that is had. So you will stand firm trusting me because I am your covenant God. And if you don't, you won't stand firm at all. And what's to stand firm mean? It's in the judgment. As the judgment sweeps across the lands, you will not escape it. So it's out there for all the people to hear, not just the king but his, his court and all the people. Yahweh speaking through Isaiah to everyone, all of you, you must stand firm in your faith. Now, if it was us, we'd just like shut the book there, right? I told them, they know what to do now. They either do it or die. And yet we serve a God that is constantly carrying out his purposes And he's constantly extending grace because he withholds his judgment so that we might repent. Look what happens next. The final section of this king, the heavenly king responding to Ahaz, offer him the comfort of any sign he chooses. Look at verse 10. Again, Yahweh spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of Yahweh Your God, notice that, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. So anything. And it's, we we might get tempted here, excuse me, we might get tempted here to think this is just an offer. Ask of any sign you want. Like a genie. Three wishes, anything you want, I'll grant them. But this is a command. It's in the imperative. Ask. You must ask a sign of Yahweh, your God. And the benefit of the doubt is there. Does Ahaz give any evidence that Yahweh is his God? None whatsoever at this point. And yet the word of Yahweh to him through Isaiah is ask a sign of Yahweh, your God. And it can be anything as deep as Sheol, as high as the heaven, anything you want. And so what God is doing is saying, I know you're doubting. I know you're fearful. I know that the situation around you are overwhelming, so ask me anything, and I'll give you the sign you asked for so that you may know that you can trust me, that when I say their plans will not stand, they will not stand. So ask. I command you. Force me to give you a sign. But Ahaz, I will not ask, and I will not put Yahweh to the test. Now, here's the way I think we should understand that. If we could take the emotions behind it, I will not ask, and I will not put my God. He doesn't say my God, does he? I will not put Yahweh to the test. It's a false piety, is it not? He doesn't care about putting God to the test. No, he's quoting Old Testament Scripture, and there's a time to do that. Remember, Jesus has quoted that Scripture, right, in his temptation. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And he stands against Satan, directly Tempted by Satan, he stands against him by quoting this passage. So there is a time that we are not putting God to the test. But what Ahaz means is, I don't want you to give me a sign because I don't intend on obeying it or listening to it anyway. My mind's made up. And so this is a false piety. This is not something that we should look at him and say, well, he's trying to be godly. No, because God says, ask the Lord your God. And Ahaz says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord. Not my Lord, not my Yahweh, but the Lord, I will not put him to the test. 
<clears throat> well, God knows his heart. <clears throat> so verse 12 is this, the third response. Ahaz responds in unbelief to the heavenly king. But in verse 13, we have the heavenly king responding to Ahaz's belief. You see, Yahweh is not fooled. There's nothing that confuses Yahweh. Yahweh understands his heart. He knows the hearts of all men. And so he comes back to him with his own sign. Look what it says in verse 13. <clears throat> and he said, Hear then, O house of David. He again opens this up. This is a sign to the entire house of David. It's not the house of Ahaz. It's, it's not Ahaz in his reign. <clears throat> We're being drawn back to the covenant that God made with David. And see, that is what Ahaz is denying. Ahaz is looking at the God who has made covenant with his people, who has promised that he would be with his people, who has promised that he would be their God, who is over and over and over shown he's trustworthy, over and over and over showed he's full of, shown he's full of grace, and he delivers his people. And Ahaz is looking at that and saying, I'm not even going to ask you for what I know you will give me. And that's the promise of your presence and the promise of your guidance and the promise of your protection. So God turns and says, Hear then, O house of David, the entire group, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Isaiah is inserting himself in there. You're, you're wearying all the men, but now you're wearying my God because he's offered you grace and you think you can turn away from it. Well, he can maybe be able to turn away from grace, but he can't turn away from God's plan and God's action, can he? Verse 14, in this response to Ahaz's unbelief, I will give my sign, and that will be Emmanuel. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you, plural, not just the king, but all the people, the house of David, all the people, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So we have this wonderful statement that is picked up in the New Testament and said it's fulfilled in Christ. So we'll get there in a minute. But we, we know that this is ultimately fulfilled in Christ because we're told that in Matthew chapter 1. But with all prophecy, we have to ask this question, is this predictive prophecy? Is this a prophecy only about something that's going to happen in the future? Or is this a prophecy that might have a near fulfillment and a farther off fulfillment? Or is this some sort of a type that we're being given a type of Christ, that, that the anti-type will be met out in Christ? What is this in this context? And it is a very difficult question. And it, every side, every viewpoint has its weaknesses. So when I preached this a year and a half ago, I said that it had a local fulfillment, but its ultimate fulfillment was in Christ. I changed my mind. You ever do that? You ever study scripture even more and realize you were probably wrong the first time? I think I was a little bit wrong. I'm still saying this is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. That's the main purpose of Isaiah 7:14. But when I preached this through our Christmas season in 2010, 2020, when I preached it, I said that there was a local fulfillment here, and I'm not convinced that there is now. I think this is a prophecy that even as we look at it, we, we can see how it's given in the local setting, but the prophecy itself is predictive. Its sole purpose is to point us forward to the coming Messiah, and I'll tell you why. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign plural, to the nation, to the house of David. We're being brought back into the covenant um, side of their relationship. But also in verse 14, we don't have Yahweh, therefore Yahweh, we have Adon, Adonai. So it's the powerful God, the, the warrior God, the, the, the God who has all power and sovereignty who is speaking to them. And he's already reminded him that he's in covenant with the house of David. And because he is, that's why the remnant is always there. Behold the virgin. Here's where one of the sticky wickets comes. The word for virgin here, there, there are two words that could be, well, several words, but we could use the word alma, which means a young maiden of marriageable age, a young woman of ma marriageable age, or we could word, use the word betula, 
which most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, means virgin. It, it either means that or it's used in a context that whether the woman is a virgin or not does not matter. So when it is used in a place, 44 of the 50 times, I think it is, it's meaning virgin. Well, what word does Isaiah use here? Isaiah does not use Betulah. He uses Alma, a young woman. That's why some liberal scholars take verse 14 and say this doesn't have anything to do with Jesus because it's not talking about a virgin, it's just talking about a young woman. And there's the direct article there, so it's a young woman in the crowd right there, and it's like pointing to someone and say, before that woman has a child, and when that woman has a child, it'll be named Emmanuel, and then it's about that only. And I don't think that stands because I think using this word is the right word to do because when he uses Alma, what he's doing is he's making it understandable what's happening here, even though I don't think there's any direct local fulfillment. I think the local fulfillment is a what-if time mark, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But this is pointing us toward the virgin birth. And why doesn't he use the word virgin? Because Mary is betrothed. And when Mary is betrothed, she ceases to be a betulah, but she still remains an alma until she has child. So I think even in this Old Testament passage, the word is used correctly to even to point us toward that ultimate fulfillment. The Septuagint translators, 200 years before Christ, translated this with the Greek word parthenos, which means virgin. They understood its meaning. Because if there was a young woman of marriageable age, what should she better be? She better be a virgin. It's expected. If she's not, she's a prostitute and she's stoned under Old Testament law. So even though we're talking about a young woman of marriageable age, the assumption is that she is a virgin. So using this word forces us forward both into its ultimate fulfillment and even gives us a way to understand the difficult part of this stance. So one other thing that we need to understand is the name, Emmanuel. Now, I ask you, what Hebrew mother would name her child God? Because that's what it means. Emmanuel, God with us. And there's no one in the narrative that gives birth to a child that's named Emmanuel. So I don't see any local fulfillment of this. There's just a nod to a time frame. The fulfillment comes fully and only. This is one of those prophecies that is purely predictive. And we know that because in chapter 8, next week, We'll get to the rest of chapter 7 and, and the first eight verses of chapter 8. We see again Emmanuel come up talking about the remnant. That God will cause the waters of judgment to rise up even to the neck, but it won't overcome them. Oh, Emmanuel, reminding us that God is with them. And if God is with them, the promise of a remnant will be there. Two verses later, we see Emmanuel again talking about the remnant. And then turn over to chapter 9. I'm not going to preach all of this. We're going to get through it. But turn over to chapter 9, verses you will know. We're being prepared for chapter 9, verse 6, are we not? For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. The Emmanuel here is the Emmanuel in chapter 9. The Emmanuel in chapter 9 is the Emmanuel born to Mary who was a virgin. And we're told in Matthew chapter 1 that that is the fulfillment. So what does it mean locally? I mean, that's the question we have to ask, right? If someone's going to say it doesn't point to Christ, they've got hard questions to ask that I think are unanswerable. There is no Emmanuel born. There is no God with us child that is born. And if you're going to, if you take the other side that I'm taking, that this is purely predictive, how does it have any local fulfillment? Well, look at verse 15. Verse 15 and 16 is the second part of the heavenly kings responding to Ahaz's unbelief. And he says, I will bring judgment on Syria and, and Israel. Look at verse 15. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread, that's Syria and Israel, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So let's just leave off the child first and just look at the picture. The picture is when this child is born, 
By the time they reached the age of 12, that's when they'd be bar, bar mitzvahed, right? That's the, that's the time that they would become a man and no good from evil. They would understand the Torah. That, that's when this would happen. Within 12 years, before then, at that 12-year point, this child's going to be eating what? Curds and honey. Well, that's kind of a weird thing to mark out in the prophecy. But by the time he's 12, he's going to be eating curds and honey. And before that happens, these two countries will already not, not be in existence. So 12 years in the future, 735, 736. Syria is overcome in 732. The northern kingdom is overcome in 722. So about 12 years later, both of them are, are gone. Both of them are overcome by Assyria. So we have to look backward here at the curds and honey. Look down at verse 22, which we'll get to next week. Verses 18 through 25 have four of these statements in that day, in that day, in that day, in that day, talking about what God will do to Judah. Not the northern kingdom, but the southern kingdom. Look at verse 17, and I'll show you why. We'll come back to 22. Verse 17, Yahweh will bring upon you, singular, talking to the king, and your people, singular, but talking to all the people, and upon your father's house such days as have not come since that day Ephraim departed from Judah, that is, after Solomon and the kingdoms divide, the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria will sweep through Syria and Israel and eventually overtake the southern kingdom into Judah, which actually they come into Jerusalem in 701. Now, now they're not taken into captivity for another hundred and some years after that in 586. But there is a march toward, toward Jerusalem that succeeds. So before these 12 years are over, the northern, I mean, the northern kingdom and, and Syria will be taken in. But also it will proceed and in future days it will overtake Assyria or, or the southern kingdom as well. Verse 22, well, look at verse 21. It's this, the third in that day statement. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. He will eat curds, and everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. This is the land that's devastated. This is a land that's devastated with only a remnant left in it. And that remnant can live off of the man who keeps one young cow and two sheep. There's a small amount of people, and all they can eat is what those two things. So this is not some loyal language. This is a mark of, of a land that's been devastated and poverty and famine. So the same food has been given there. So when we go back up to verse 15, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and good. So 12 years later, he'll be in the midst of this ravished country that still has a remnant that God has promised. Now, how is it that this is Emmanuel? And this is, this is what I think is, is happening here. The prophecy is to the house of David. We're pushed forward to the future, even in the fulfillment that this child will be in that remnant as, as the, the country has been ravished. He is in that remnant. Then we're pushed forward to chapter 8, where we're reminded of the remnant because God is with them twice, Emmanuel. And then we're pushed forward to chapter 9, where the prophecy is clearly about one who will reign eternally on the throne of David. And that's all that we're talking about. What is here is possible because of the word that he uses that is translated a young woman. And any child born at this time, within 12 years, they're going to be bar, bar mitzvah. And that's the time frame, 12 years later, that these two firebrands, smoldering firebrands, that you are fearful of, they'll be wiped off the face of the earth that quickly. So this is a wonderful Setting in the Old Testament that is the prophecy of Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Now, what, what the people would have heard, the believing people, they would have heard God is with us. How will we know that? There will be a remnant. It's the constant promise. And we'll look next week, even at the destruction of, of the, the, over, the 
the waters of destruction that come of Assyria moving down into Jerusalem. And we see, we'll see in the language there that there's still a remnant that is promised through there. And Emmanuel is tied to that remnant. The remnant is still promised in chapter 9. And Emmanuel flourishes in his description there. It's the same kind of description that's given in Micah chapter 2. Where there is a woman who will give birth to a child. All pointing forward to the, the, the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So that setting is a virgin birth, because Joseph wants to be a righteous man and put his wife away. That's what a righteous husband would do, but he doesn't want to draw shame to her. And the angel comes and says, you don't need to do that because she's still a virgin. This has been given to her. This birth has been given by the Holy Spirit. Verse 22 says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then our verse 714 is quoted. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we know that the ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus Christ and his birth. We know that the ultimate fulfillment in 714 is Christ and his birth. And I would say it is the sole purpose of the text to bring encouragement to that people at that time, the remnant throughout all time, and all of the believers as the scriptures tell us that that is fulfilled in Christ. And all of this, this is how we can stand firm in our faith. Because we know that all of the scriptures have pointed forward to Christ and Christ has lived the perfect life and died the perfect death so that we, if we put our faith and trust in him, stand in trusting him that we will stand in the day of judgment. The same promise is held out to us. And so this promise has given encouragement to God's people throughout history and still gives encouragement to us today. That's how we stand. And this is the point where we are tempted sometimes to forget all of this richness and all of a sudden we think, well, the stock market's crashing, so I think I better do something else with my money or otherwise I won't be able to retire. And we start putting our faith in our 401k instead of God. I'm not saying not to, to, to put money in your 401k. I'm saying don't have your trust in that. Have it be a blessing from God. If it's there when you need it, it'll be because God gave it to you as a blessing. But you're worshiping and trusting in the one who gives you that. It's the same thing if you have a job. It's the same thing whether you're being persecuted in your job. It's so easy to turn away from Christ and put your faith and trust in someone or something else, even if you would never say, well, I'm trusting in money and not in Jesus. Our actions might be, I'm trusting in money, I'm trusting in family, I'm trusting in other possessions, I'm trusting in status, I'm trusting in my job. This is the way where people all the time when they pray, well, I prayed and God gave me what I wanted, and he's such a good God. I want to say, what if you prayed and God gave you the opposite of what you wanted? Would he still be a good God? Yes, he's still a good God because you're worshiping him, not what he gives. You're not assessing what he gives by your eyes because your faith and trust is placed in him. And the reason we can do that is because all of the Old Testament points forward to his perfect life and death and resurrection. And this is, what we, this is what we celebrate when we come together, is it not? We're reminding ourselves of rich, deep um, centuries-long truths that we can trace back in the Scripture that Jesus came, lived that perfect life. And Hebrews 2 quotes the, the um, chapter 8 of Isaiah in that rich passage in Hebrews 2 where it talks about Jesus coming and identifying with these people. This, this section is quoted right in that section as well so that we know that according to the Old Testament Scriptures, Jesus has come to identify with us in everything from his birth to his death. He missed nothing of what it meant to be a human, but he did so in perfection, upholding and fulfilling the law of God. And so we look back and we say that was all prophesied, that was all promised to us in the Old Testament. And we were remembering that because when he died, the Scriptures told us that he would do this 
on our behalf. He would be our substitute. So we're remembering in the bread, we're remembering in the cup, his shed, his broken body and his shed blood. But we're also looking forward, are we not? Because these same passages tell us, when we, especially when we get to chapter 9, that this is an eternal king. This Emmanuel that, that is with his people, we see him in his incarnation coming, right? We see that in John in the prologue, right? Jesus comes and, and he comes and, and he, he's with us. The prologue to John says that Jesus walked with us and we beheld his glory, glory of the only Father, the only God, full of grace and truth. So he came, even in his incarnation, he came to be Emmanuel, God with us. And when he comes again, he comes to bring us with him because he's still Emmanuel, God with us, and we will reign with him forever. So when we celebrate, we are looking back on what he's accomplished, and we're doing so with, with thanksgiving, and, but we're also looking forward to what he will do when he returns again, because he will take us out of this world that he's had us on mission on and place us in his presence where sin is gone, and death is gone, and pain and suffering and dying are all gone, and for eternity, Forever, never ending, we worship the one who is Emmanuel because he came and died and he rose again and he comes back for us. Take a moment to prepare your hearts for the Lord's Supper. The scriptures tell us that we are to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. At the very least, that is coming forward and understanding that Christ came as God fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures, died and rose again, and that our faith and trust is in him. And that when we're not standing firm, he is disciplining us because it is Christ who stands firm in our place. It is Christ who will stand firm on judgment day in our behalf. So make sure that you're in Christ, that you have repented of your sins and trusted in him. If you have not, you should abstain from this. If you're visiting with us and you're not a member of our church, you are welcome to take the Lord's Supper. If you are one of these people, if you are a person who has placed their faith and trust in Christ and you are endeavoring to stand firm in your faith, and that's faith in Christ alone, then you're welcome. So prepare your hearts to take the Lord's Supper. And if you're serving, please come forward now.